Today we're going to continue in our series on the uh, uncompromised church. And uh, we've been looking at this for a couple weeks now. We have one more week, and so we're not going to fully get through this outline today, but uh, uh, it's just there. Um, We'll see how far we get. I know that the subject of spiritual gifts um, can be rather uh, divisive, I guess, is in the body of Christ today, in the church in general. And there's some that believe some of those gifts are for today. Uh, there's others, like ourselves, who believe that some of those gifts were given as temporary sign gifts for the establishment of the New Testament church. And unfortunately, our society and the church has broken those, in, those two segments of beliefs into charismatics and non-charismatics. Uh, and so when someone calls our church and says, is your church a charismatic church? I always hesitate because I always ask them, what do you mean by that? What exactly are you talking about? Well, in other words, do you guys speak in tongues and slain in the spirit and all that? No, we don't believe those things are for today, but um, we're definitely a charismatic church. That word charis simply means grace, and it's really been hijacked by the modern-day charismatic movement. Um, I don't know of a Christian who's not charismatic. You can't be a Christian without being charismatic. Uh, You're saved by grace, charis. You're equipped by grace. You're kept by grace. And then eventually we're going to be glorified by the grace of God. There's no such thing as a charismatic and a non-charismatic Christian. So we need to kind of re-establish our linguistics and our definitions when we come to terms like this. Now, I know what they're saying. I understand what they're, they mean. But it's when you, someone approaches you and asks you, are you a charismatic Take time to explain to them what that word means. It simply means grace. And all the gifts have been gifted to us by a gracious God. There's not one gift that we have that we deserve. Um, And so we need to keep that terminology uh, clear. It simply means a grace gift or, or something that's gifted to us through grace. Now we've been looking over the past couple weeks about uh, different attitudes, a willingness to serve in the church, and the need for your giftedness and the nature of your giftedness. And we touched last week on how everyone in the body of Christ is meant to serve, and the willing servant is spontaneous in what he does. There's so many people within the church that just sit around and say, "Well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is," and you know, either because of their age or because of their lack of willingness, whatever it might be, uh, they come and they warm a pew every Sunday, thinking, "Okay, I'm doing my just." due to the Lord, I'm going to church. Well, that's not what God, God intended the church to be, beloved. The church is not a place to come and sit. The, place, the church is a place to come and serve, to come and use your unique gift that God has given you, the way God has created you. And that's what the definition of a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is a God-given capacity through which the Holy Spirit supernaturally ministers to the body of Christ. We're all gifted in some form or fashion as Christians. And we're going to look over some of those gifts today. But before we do get into the, the actual gifts that are mentioned in Scripture, uh, 
there's basic principles relating to spiritual gifts. And there's, there's 12 of them. They're listed in your outline. And we're going to kind of go through these quickly. The first one is that spiritual gifts are something that's essential for the church to operate. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians, the text that we've been in, chapter 12, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about your spiritual gifts. Because gifts, spiritual gifts, are for the life of the body. Ephesians 4.12 says that the saints must minister in order that the body might be built up. So we're all gifted in different ways, and they're essential. We're essential to the body of Christ. Secondly, these gifts can also be counterfeited. And we see that as you look through the book of 1 Corinthians. When we actually go through that book, you're going to find out some things about these counterfeit gifts. But just remember, anything God does, Satan always counterfeits. I don't care if it's music or whatever it might be. Spiritual gifts even. And 1 Corinthians 12, 2-3 explains in detail the fact of this counterfeiting that was going on. And it happened back then and it even happens today. We have a wonderful seminar coming up in a couple weeks with Justin Peters exposing some of the modern day word of faith movement. And a lot of the counterfeit an errant, wrong teaching that is going on in the name of Christ. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is the source of all these gifts. These are not natural gifts. Playing the piano is not a spiritual gift. These are things that are energized by the Spirit of God. These are something that's beyond your natural capability to do, capacity to do. They're supernatural spiritual enablements. And that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 12 calls them simply spirituals, referring to spiritual gifts. They're characterized and they're controlled by the Spirit of God. Fourthly there, I put, they will always unite the body of Christ. Even though it's a very divisive topic today in the church to talk about spiritual gifts. I mean, you get a group of pastors together and you start talking about spiritual gifts, depending on what background they're from. I mean, you could have a real uh, interesting dialogue on your hands But spiritual gifts are given to unite the body of Christ. They never were meant to divide the body of Christ. They were never meant to be looked at as saying, oh, you know, you have these gifts and I have these gifts. Oh, you need this gift. And that's what some of the modern day uh, movement does when it comes to spiritual gifts. They emphasize certain gifts gift of languages, or they call it tongues. Well, you've got to speak in tongues in order to be saved. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. And they misunderstand what the original gift was given for, and they misunderstand that that gift is no longer around today. But they will always unite the body of Christ. That's why there in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, it says, talks about the same Spirit. Verse 5 says, the same Lord. Verse 6 says, the same God works in all of you. Verse 11, he says, but all these works together in that very same Spirit. See, it's the same Spirit, it's the same God, it's the same Lord that gifts us. And so surely, he's not going to gift people and then have them fight against each other and divide the body of Christ. Fifthly, they're not a sign of spirituality. Some people may say, well, you're... I'm, I'm more spiritual than you because I have this gift or I have that gift. No spiritual gift has any really relation to spirituality. 
And if you say, what do I mean? Read through the book of 1 Corinthians. They were a very, Paul calls them carnal church. They were a very fleshly church, and yet they possessed all the gifts. So giftedness is not a sign of spirituality. Nor are they for the building up of yourself, of self-edification. Some people who uh, speak of the gift of languages, the gift of tongues today, you know, you ask them, would you understand what you're praying? No, I don't. But it builds me up. It edifies me. And my question is always to them, where in the Word of God are you ever told to build yourself up? I don't see that. I don't see any gift ever given for that reason. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, 5, the gifts are referred to as services. What's a service? A service is something that I do for you. It wouldn't be a service if I just did it for myself. In verse 7, they're called manifestation. A manifestation is something that is made public. Verse 7 there, it also says that they were given to every man to profit. The Greek literally says there in the original language, for the good of those gathered together. That's why we're gifted. That's why we use these spiritual gifts. Every spiritual gift is a gift that's given for the good of others. It does no good to anyone to operate a spiritual gift independent of other people. So when you hear people saying, well, I'm going to go home and lock myself in my closet and speak in this language that I don't even understand what I'm saying, that's not a legitimate spiritual gift. I'm sorry. And you say, well, it sounds kind of hard to hear that. Well, yeah, because there's, there's a lot of people that are misinformed on that. All gifts, seventhly there, are to build the body. That kind of goes along with what we just said. The work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12 says. 12.7 says that they're to profit everybody as we're gathered together. Now there's some gifts that are also sign gifts, miraculous gifts. We're not, in our study, really going to get into all those. We're going to talk about more of the gifts that are used today. But that's a whole study in and of itself, and one day we'll go, go through that. But there are some gifts that were used specifically just for the apostolic age, just for the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22 says, Where there are languages or tongues for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. And so Paul clearly states that the gift of languages was given for a sign to who? To unbelievers, not to believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5 says you should never speak in languages except you interpret in order that the church may receive edifying. So what goes on in a lot of the modern day, we'll just call the charismatic movement, They all get together and everybody starts speaking in tongues and they're all going off. That's not biblical. That gift is not utilized today. It was a sign gift. It was meant to be a sign gift. It was a a gift that gets the attention and kind of validated those who were founding the church along with healings and other things. Are we saying that God doesn't heal? No, God heals. He definitely heals. I pray for my sister's healing every day. But you know what? I'm not 
claiming I have the gift of healing, I'm not going to fly back to Pennsylvania and go in her hospital room and say, hey, be healed, let's go. And she pops out of bed and walks out of the hospital. See, that's what was happening in the New Testament. These men were gifted in a miraculous way. And they were assigned to the unbelieving that, hey, God has his hand upon these people as they established that New Testament church. And you can do a whole study that, you know, you can go through 1 Corinthians and we're not going to do it here. Because inevitably when you talk to someone who says they have the gift of tongues, well, Paul, Paul prayed in tongues. Well, yes, he does. It does say that says he prayed in many languages, actually. They were legitimate languages. That word in the Greek always means a language. It doesn't mean just... It doesn't mean that. And yet, Paul actually forbids them to pray like that. Jesus actually forbade them to pray that way. He said, pray not like the pagans do. In what? Vain repetition. If you've ever been in one of those meetings and you heard somebody pray in tongues, what is it? It's a repetitive thing over and over and over and over again. They're saying the same thing, the same, it's, it's not even words, it's, it's just, it's, it's onomatopoeic. It means, you know, it's just kind of a non-word. Like a little boy playing with a truck goes, Rrm! that's not really a word, right? That's onomatopoeic phraseology. And that's what happens when some of these people are saying they're speaking in tongues. You say, well, what are you saying? I don't know what I'm saying. Really? So we want to be clear that some of these are sign gifts. Some of them have done, ceased. Because it does say that they will cease. It says prophecies will be done away. Knowledge will be done away. Tongues will cease. And when you do your word study in the original language, you're going to find out that the verb for the gift of languages, when it says tongues will cease, it's different than when he says prophecy will be done away with. It has the idea that that tongues will just all of a sudden just stop. And then those who hold that view say, well, but it says, you know, prophecy will cease when that which is perfect has come. But it doesn't say there anything about tongues. It just says prophecy and knowledge will be replaced when that which is perfect is come, which I believe is the eternal state when we're with the Lord. It's not the rapture of the church because those two gifts, prophecy and knowledge, that's going to be going on on earth during that time. So it can only be when we are in the face, in the presence of our Lord and Savior, the eternal state. That's when we're not going to look dimly through a glass, right? We're going to see him face to face. But these gifts, these sign gifts, were given for the foundation of the church. There wasn't a church before this, and all of a sudden, these apostles came along, and God gifted them supernaturally, and people had already seen what Christ had done. Well, Christ was off the scene. He was back in heaven. He rose from the dead. He ascended. Well, He left these apostles to establish the church. Can you imagine if they weren't gifted with any miracles, if they they weren't connected in any way miraculously to the workings of Christ? Christ raised people from the dead. He healed people, did all sorts of things. 
miraculous things, to establish himself as the very God. Well, when he left the apostles here to start the church, God supernaturally put his spirit upon them in a way that was never done before. And they were able to do miraculous things so that people would step back and go, wow, these, these guys are saying they're establishing the church for Christ. And you know what? We believe them because look at what they're doing. They're raising people from the dead. They're healing people. And God gave them those gifts supernaturally. Some people say, well, don't you think the gift of healings is around today? No, I don't. And if it was, I got a couple people that I want you to come with me (laughs) so you can heal them. Wouldn't it be neat to have that gift? Go over to Al's house. Hey, Al, how you doing? Swanson, back bothering you a little bit. You know what? In Jesus' name, get up and walk. And he would be healed. See, that's what the gift of healings is. You go into Sequoia Hospital and you go around and say, what's bothering you today? You broke your leg. You know what? In Jesus' name, get up and walk. You go to the next room. That's the kind of supernatural gifting that these men had. I don't see that happening today. I see a lot of smoke and mirrors and you always hear, well, you know, over in the backwoods of somewhere, and all of a sudden this person was healed. We're not saying, beloved, God can't heal. God still heals today. He just doesn't choose to use a certain individual with that particular gift to do the healing. And I think the reason is pretty clear. Can you imagine if we had people walking around with the gift of healing today? I mean, think about it. We have people that claim they have the gift of healing. Right? Charlatans that are claiming it. And the church is lifting them up and putting them on a pedestal. Can you imagine if we had people that actually had the real gift of healing? Talk about elevating people. I think one of the reasons God doesn't allow that kind of gift around today is simply because of the pride of man. I'd feel pretty good about myself if I was able to walk into people's houses and say, in Jesus' name, get up and walk. And they walked. And they were healed completely? I think maybe my flesh couldn't handle that kind of credential, (laughs) that ability. So there were some sign gifts, and there's some permanent gifts, and we're going to talk about that today. But all the gifts are given to build the church. Even the sign gifts, they're given to build the church. And they come in different varieties. And this is important for you to understand. There's a variety of gifts, it says in verse 4, a variety of services, variety of operations. It says dividing to every man severally or uniquely, particularly. In other words, no two Christians are alike in their giftedness. And that's why sometimes I almost hesitate to hand out a, a gift assessment or something like that. And like I said last week, the things that we gave out, they just kind of push you in the general direction. Don't by any means take that little survey and go, oh, this is my gift. No, you've got to kind of be pointed in a certain direction and then exercise that gift and you'll figure out real quick whether you're gifted in that area or not. But they're all different. Each one of us, you know, some of us may have the gift of teaching. Well, it's going to be different than somebody else who has a gift of teaching. It's not going to be exactly alike. That's why we're all vital to the life 
and ministry of the church. We're all important. There's no unessential people here within the body of Christ. There's no bench warmers by design in God's kingdom. We're gifted in a variety of ways. And then also, I put there, you can have a gift and not be using it. The reason I know that is because in 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift. So you could be gifted by God in a certain way, in a certain giftedness, and choose not to use it. That happens all the time. Maybe because you're discouraged, or maybe other issues in your life, whatever it might be. But Paul had to pull Timothy aside and say, hey, stir up that gift. Don't, don't let it sit there unused. Also, this, this list is not exhaustive. When you look at certain spiritual gift lists in the Bible, some people want to make that list exhaustive. It isn't, because they're all mixed together. You can't, it's hard to define which of these spiritual gifts you may even possess sometimes. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 8 to 12, it, it contains the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healing, the works of miracles, prophecies, discerning of spirits, languages, interpretation of languages. Over in Romans 12, there's another list. It's completely different. It talks about prophecy, ministry, and teaching, exhortation, giving, ruling, showing mercy. What's that mean? That there's not a definable list. It means that within the body of Christ, you know what that means? There's flexibility. It means that just because you have the gift of maybe prophecy doesn't mean that you are just like this person over here. We're all different. And then lastly there, the gifts are distinct from the fruit of the Spirit. Some people get that confused. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. See, the, the, the way to distinguish between a spiritual gift and the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit are simply this. The gifts are act, activities. They're actions. They're ministries. But the fruit of the Spirit is kind of the attitude behind that giftedness. When the action operates without the fruit, the fruit is being operated in, the gift is being operated in the flesh. That's what was happening in 1 Corinthians. And so we want to be careful that we're not using our giftedness in the flesh, but we're using it in the spirit with the right motivation, with the right understanding of how God wants to use us. Now, there's basically three different categories, you might want to say, under this spiritual gift heading, and we'll look at a couple today, but the first one is interesting. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, that God has set some in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversity of languages, so forth. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, it says, And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor-teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. 
So what are these three categories? Well, the first category is the gifted men category. And these aren't necessarily spiritual gifts. These are, are offices within the church that God has established in which certain men use their spiritual gift. So he mentions here in these lists the apostle, prophet, evangelist, teaching pastor, and teacher. And these are five different individuals who are gifted given to the church as gifts to lead and direct and perfect the church. That's one group, and we're going to look at that in a a couple minutes here. And then the second group are, think of it as permanent edifying gifts. Permanent gifts that are going to be around, and they build up the body of Christ. They're there for the duration of the church and its ministry. And then the third category that I said we're really not going to get into because it doesn't really affect us here, but are the temporary sign gifts. And these gifts, as I said, were given just for a specific period, a specific time, for a very specific purpose. Now, when you think of the permanent edifying gifts, when we get there, you'll see that 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace, or multicolored grace. In other words, when you're a Christian, God gifts you with something, and you're a steward of that giftedness. Minister your gift. Use your gift. And then he divides there in 1 Peter, in verse 11, he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God provides. So, Get this in your head. First, we have the gifted men. These are offices within the church that men are raised up and they use their giftedness. Secondly, you have the permanent edifying gifts, and those are broken down into two kinds of different giftedness. One is speaking gifts, and one is serving gifts. Well, let's look at the first point here. These these men, these gifted men who were gifted to the church. And these are broken basically into two levels because some of these men were gifted for the founding of the church and then their office went away. And they were replaced by the following three. But let's, let's look at the first group here, the apostles. The apostles were the primary gifted men in the history of the church. That Greek uh, word basically means a common word for messenger or sent one. Now, don't confuse the word apostle in the New Testament. Sometimes you're going to see the word apostle. It refers to the office of apostle. Other times it refers to just somebody who's being sent. In our modern day vernacular, you know, a missionary could be an apostle. But not in the New Testament foundational uh, way that we're going to understand it here today mean they're just a sent one. So there's kind of two, two distinguishments here among the apostles. They're all messengers, but there's the primary ones, and of those primary ones, there was only 13 listed in the New Testament. Jesus chose them, okay? There was the original 12, and then Matthias. Hebrews 3.1, this is interesting, it says of Christ that he is an apostle and high priest of our profession. 
He's the first messenger. He's the first sent one, you might say. He's the apostle over all the apostles. And then you have the 12 that Jesus called. And you can see those lists in Matthew 10 and Luke 6, Acts chapter 1. They chose one to take the place of Judas after Judas kind of fell out. And that, his name was Matthias. And so who is an apostle? The 12 referred uh, to are basically those who were called by Christ. Um, and it's an office within the church that definitely had a limited use. Um, we don't believe that there's apostles around today. We believe that after the church was founded, the foundation was laid, the apostles went away. Um, and I think that it's, it's important to understand what an apostle was. Apostle had a couple different things that they had to do. First of all, they had to be chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. They also had to see the risen Christ. That's why when they went to choose Matthias, they were very methodically methodical in who they chose. They just didn't grab somebody from the crowd and say, okay, you can know. They had to meet certain requirements to be an apostle in the primary sense. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, John writes this, That was from the beginning, Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. See, you, you see here, he's, he's saying we've, we've seen, we've heard, we, we declare to you that we're his apostles. We, we had firsthand knowledge of Christ. He's talking about the apostles there. The apostle is one who heard and saw the manifestations of Jesus Christ and one that he called out to be one of his sent ones. There are no apostles today because today no one sees Jesus Christ, to be honest with you. If you question that, what are you going to do with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8? Where he says, Whom you have not seen, speaking of Christ, you love. Right? Why would Peter write that? Because Christ was here for a period of time and then he left. He went back to heaven. He's not wandering around here on earth physically. They had to see the resurrected Christ. In Acts chapter 1, Peter said this, speaking of the one that would replace Judas, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. They had to see the resurrected Christ. And you say, well, what about Paul? Isn't he an apostle? He didn't. Oh, yes, he did. Right? He's, he's what you call an apostle born out of due time. And, and, and he, was, he was raised up to be an apostle because Jesus Christ made a trip all the way back from heaven, from glory, to visit him on that road to Damascus. So he definitely saw the risen Lord. So you had that group of men who were the primary foundation of the church. And then you had the secondary group, and that's the other term you see in the New Testament a lot that refers to apostles, and it's referred to in a more general way. It just means somebody sent. If we sent you out as a missionary here from this church, in a general way, you could use that Greek word apostle. 
But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the church is built, and this is important to understand, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Remember that. The church is founded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So you say, well, what, how about the gift of, of prophet? How are they different? Who are the prophets? The Greek word basically means one who speaks out the truth of God. One who speaks out. Don't get this confused with somebody who's making prophetic uh, utterances. Now, sometimes it was divine revelation. You see that in the Old Testament, even some of it in the New Testament. And this is the office of prophet. Don't get it confused with the gift of, of prophecy. Two different things. And so since both the office of apostle and the office of prophet was used to establish the church, the New Testament church, it says particularly, Ephesians 2.20 says, the New Testament church is laid on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Think of the apostles as having a broad-based ministry to the worldwide church. The prophet had a ministry to the local church. The only time Paul was ever called a prophet was when he was one of the five pastors at the church in Antioch in Acts 13.1. Some of these men were apostles and prophets together. They held both offices. And they spoke the word of God. Sometimes they spoke in a revelatory way because the canon wasn't completed yet, clearly. But this is an office. It's not just a gift. And when they, if you've ever built a house and you understand that you know, you clear the lot and the construction crew comes out and they dig a big trench wherever the, the house is going to go. And what do they do? They put a form in there and they, they bring a big cement truck in and they, they lay what? What do they lay? The foundation, right? Very important to have a foundation. If you don't have a foundation, what's going to happen? It's, gonna, it's gonna, not going to last very long. It's not going to work out for you in the long run when the rains come, when the wind blows. You have to have a foundation. So what God did is in establishing the church, he just didn't plop the church here. He said, no, it has to have a foundation. And so he gifted the church with the office of apostles and prophets who came. And the Bible says that the foundation of the church was laid on the apostles and the prophets. Now, when you build your house and the cement truck comes out and the construction crew builds the form and they pour the concrete and they wait a couple days and the concrete dries. What do they do? What does that work crew do usually? They leave, right? Generally, they leave. They come in and they take the forms off and they say, okay, here's your foundation. Call the carpenters in, right? And the carpenters build upon the foundation that was laid. It would be silly to take that foundation and keep the crew there that's building the foundation and say, okay, build up some more forms. We're going to put another foundation on this foundation. We'll just keep on building foundations. You won't have any walls, but man, you'll, you'll have a nice foundation. You'd say that'd be ridiculous. It's the same thing when it comes to the church. The church came, the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church. Once the foundation was laid, what do you think happened to their office? It ceased. It went away. 
That's why we as a, as a church don't believe that we have the office of apostle or the office of prophet today within the church. They were a distinct group of men upon which the New Testament church, the foundation, was laid. It's an office. It's not a gift. And the office passed away. But the gift of prophecy is still active today. Speaking out the word of God. And I think that we need to be clear on what we're talking about. A prophet was geared to the local congregation. The apostles had a broad, kind of widespread responsibility. And the prophets were more localized. Revelation was actually given to both of them in the establishment of the church. When you think of revelation given by the apostles, it was always doctrinal. They laid down some doctrinal essentials, doctrinal foundations for the church to build upon. And when it came to the prophets, their revelation was always practical. Well, how's this church supposed to work? What's the, how's it supposed to function? What happens if this happens? And the prophets were always beholden to the apostles. Because it says, when you hear somebody speak out as a prophet, you better make sure that they're saying the same things that the apostles did. Because if they didn't, they're not from God. The prophets were subject to the apostles' teaching. Both of these groups were a temporary group. They were here for a period of time. And then they left. When you think of prophets, they were around in the Old Testament. And then for 400 years, nobody heard anything from a prophet. Until... It came time once again to establish the church. And then all of a sudden they rose up for a period of time and then they, they went away again. Well, what are the, the functions of these apostles and the prophets? What is the function of their office? Well, first of all, we talked about that. It's basically to lay the foundation. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We don't keep on building a foundation once it's built. Jesus Christ clearly being the chief cornerstone. And then secondly, they had a responsibility there, a function of revelation. They were God's mouthpiece to reveal his truth, both doctrinally and practically. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, "...which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it has now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." That's Ephesians 3, 5. And then thirdly, they were there to confirm. They had certain gifts. They had certain abilities to do miraculous things beyond even the revelation that they got. If revelation is complete, and we believe it is, the book, the canon of Scripture is closed, what would there be need for these gentlemen anymore? The foundation is already laid. It doesn't have to be laid again. Well, what replaced the apostles and the, the prophets? 
Well, basically, there were some fundamental positions that God established in the New Testament church. In Ephesians 4.11, it calls uh, out evangelists, those who were primarily, they would go around, they would establish churches, they would win people to Christ, they would share the gospel. Ephesians 4.11 also speaks of pastor-teachers, kind of a, a, a dual rule. You're, you're a teacher, but you're also a pastor, a shepherd to a local congregation. And then also there's, in, in the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, some people say, well, it's the same as pastor-teacher. But I think it's different because I think that there's people who are gifted teachers who may not be in the position of an elder within the local church. If you're in the position of an elder, if you're in the position of a pastor-teacher, you, you definitely better have the gift of teaching. But just because you have the gift of teaching, that doesn't make you a pastor-teacher or an elder within the local church. So these are kind of the different giftings that God has raised up, the evangelists, the pastor teachers, the teachers, to replace these offices of the apostles and the prophets. And it's up to these guys as gifts to the church to come and, and to really build up the body of Christ. And they do that through certain gifts. And it leads us to our edifying gifts. We said there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, it talks of speaking gifts and it talks of ministering gifts or serving gifts. Well, let's look at the speaking gifts first. Just quickly here. There are five speaking gifts mentioned in Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, and also over in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. The first gift we're going to cover here, the first one is prophecy. And you can... Read that in, in Romans uh, 12.6. talks about the gift of, of prophecy. This isn't a prophet. This is the gift of prophecy. And it's also mentioned over in 1 Corinthians 12.10. Now some people say, well, I don't think that gift is around today. And the reason they say that is because when they go to 1 Corinthians and they say, well, tongues will cease, prophecy and knowledge will be done away with, okay, they say, well, in order to have tongues not be around today, you can't have prophecy either, and that's not true. If you do a word study in the original language, when it says tongues will cease, that's a different word than the word that's used that says prophecy and knowledge will be done, done away with. Two different words. And you can do that study on your own, or one day maybe we'll get into it, but we're not going to get into it this morning. But there's a distinction, distinction there. Um, when the Bible was finished, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, some say, well, then everything passed away as soon as the canon was, was closed. Well, that's not true. It's not true. What is prophecy? Prophecy basically means to speak before. To come up and speak before people. To speak before an audience to speak in public, to proclaim publicly. That's what the gift of prophecy is. It's not revelatory, revelatory, I mean, in the, in the way that you're getting this directly from God. No, a prophet today takes the word of God and he expounds upon the scripture and then he stands before an audience and he speaks before them the truth of God. That's the gift of prophecy. Proclaiming something God has already revealed in the past. It's simply a gift of communication, you might say. It has 
nothing to do with predicting the future or anything like that. It's the ability given by the Spirit of God to a person to proclaim God's truth to others. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, But he that prophesies speaks unto men. That's a pretty simple definition of the gift of prophecy. He speaks unto men God's word. He proclaims it. That's the idea. Well, what's the second gift here in our list? Word of knowledge. And some people, you know, I think in the New Testament time, part of this may have been revelation from God. But being that the canon is closed... We don't believe that God is giving out new revelation today. You don't come into the church here and say, oh, you know what, I have a new revelation from God, thus saith the Lord, and then you say something that's not found in Scripture. There's an element of the church today that believes that still goes on. That's why they get in so much trouble. They're, they're operating outside the confines that God has given us. Well, what is this word of knowledge? It says in, in 12, 8, 1 Corinthians 12.8, For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge. Let's look at the word of knowledge first. It's it's kind of a hard gift to really define. But if you want to kind of just boil it down and and make it simple, it's a spirit-given ability to observe biblical facts and make conclusions. Doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? But have you ever met somebody with a gift like this? I have. And they'll look at a passage, and I'll read it and read it and read it. And then I say, what do you see here? And, and they give you something that, wow, where did you, yeah, I see it now, now that you tell me, but I didn't see it before. See, that's a gift, that's a, that's a word of knowledge, that's, they're, they're able to take what they're understanding and make certain biblical facts and, and, and observe them and make con- con- conclusions based on that. When you stop and you, you think about that, that's a very practical gift. You think of all the people that write all these commentaries and all these books. A lot of those people have this word of knowledge, the gift of knowledge. They just are able to, to understand a subject matter and put it in print and, and distribute it, and everybody grows as a result of it. The second one there, the word of wisdom... Word of wisdom, think of it this way. One is understanding the facts. The word of wisdom would be more applying those facts in a practical way. Have you ever talked to an auto mechanic who's never worked on a car, but they know everything about the car? Because they've read all the manuals. And you say, that's, that's kind of a silly illustration, but it is. You know, that, that's kind of what the, the difference is here. The word of knowledge is people that can man, grapple the, with the facts and really understand them. Word of wisdom is, is the ability to take those facts and put them to practical use, skillful application, rather than just having a knowledge of the facts. There are people that have never read a, a mechanic's manual in their life, and yet you ask them what's wrong with their car, and they'll turn it up, start it up, and listen to it. Oh, you know what, I think it's this. And they just fix it. They have the wisdom 
to do that. Well, in a spiritual sense, that's what this, this word of knowledge and the word of wisdom is. And then you're able to communicate that to others. That word wisdom, basically, my granddaughter's name means wisdom, Sophia, in the Greek. That's what it means. It has that ability to take facts and put them to practical use. And that's very important for the church today. The skill of applying God's word. Not just knowing it, but applying it. Some of you may be gifted in the word of knowledge. You just are able to see certain facts and others kind of use the gift of the word of wisdom to apply those things. Also, there's the gift of teaching in Romans 12, 7. It says in 12, 7, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering or he that teaches on the teaching. Whatever you teach, what that's saying, let's be consistent with the teaching. It has to be laid upon the foundation that the apostles and the prophets already built. These aren't teachers who go off on their own and teach whatever they want. No, they're confined to the truth of Scripture. You say, well, what's the difference between that and the office? I kind of already told you. You can be a teacher and not hold an office within the local church. If you hold the office of teacher or pastor teacher within the local church, you better have the gift of teaching. I mean, that's the whole purpose, right? But it has the idea you're passing the truth on to someone else. You're able to proclaim it to an audience. Or you can see here the gift of exhortation. I think this is a much misunderstood gift today in our church. It says, he who exhorteth on or- exhortation um, in, in, he, in Romans 12, 8. What is exhortation? What does that mean? It actually comes from the, the same Greek word we get the word Holy Spirit or comforter from. When we think of exhorting somebody, we don't think of comforting them. But that's exactly what this means. The word means to comfort, to help, to advise, or to strengthen. Sometimes people who are very harsh or emotionless, oh, you got the gift of exhortation. Sometimes, I don't know, after you understand what the gift is, you know, <laughs> they're not much comfort to anybody. So you got to kind of second guess that. But it literally means to comfort, help, advise, or strengthen. It's the gift of strengthening somebody else. See, their their job isn't necessarily to proclaim the truth or even to dig into the facts or even to apply them with all the, the wisdom or to systematically teach through a subject matter, something like that. That's not their gift. And person with the gift of exhortation has the ability to come alongside somebody and build them up and strengthen them. And we need those people in the church, amen? They encourage you. They, they help you. They, they, they strengthen someone who needs it. I mean, it, it can come through the pulpit ministry of a church because prophecy, in a way, is, is exhorting people at times. But it can also come through teaching. 
It can come through counseling. It can come in a lot of different ways. Some people say, well, that's the gift of counseling, exhortation. No, there's no gift of counseling. Maybe applied that way, but that's not necessarily a gift. Luther said this, teaching is directed to the ignorant, exhortation to those who know better. <laughs> so you see here these, these different kinds of gifts. And as you took your little survey, you know, hopefully it pushed you in the direction of, of one of these. And you've got to stop and you've got to ask yourself, okay, how, how am I using my gift in the body of Christ? I mean, that's what we're called to do. You know, it, it doesn't matter what the gift is. You don't get to pick and choose from the smorgasbord of gifts. I think I'll take two of these and one of those. That's not how it works, beloved. You're given what God gives you, and he gives it to you sovereignly, knowing you best as your creator. So we have to make some hard decisions. You know, I've met some Christians that all they do is whine about how they're not gifted in certain, certain areas. They're not gifted to do this. Oh, I wish I was gifted like that. I wish I was, you know, and they're not doing anything for the Lord as a result. The key is understanding what and how God has gifted you and then get busy using that gift within the body of Christ. Ask yourself, are you ministering? If you're a Christian, are you ministering your spiritual gift? If not, why not? There's ample opportunity you know, you shouldn't be waiting for us to say, oh, here, here, do this ministry or do that. That's not how the body of Christ works. God should be leading you as you read through the word and as you pray and as you discern, well, where does God want to use me? And you try out different ministries. Because he's given these gifts to you and you are either going to be a poor steward of what God gave you or a good steward. And I think the key is just do something. And then God will kind of show you and, and complete you in your ministry capacity, whatever that might be. But do something. Be doing something for the Lord. We'll finish these other ones next week. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that I know there's a lot of information to cover, but Father, I pray that the foundation has been laid for a proper understanding of your gifts to the church. Lord, and I know we can't just pigeonhole these gifts and, and take a test and understand completely how we're gifted. I'm sure that as we mature in Christ, our gifts grow and change and we minister to others. Lord, we'll see your hand of blessing upon these gifts. But Lord, it's clear that you have not called us to be a church and to come and warm a pew and do absolutely nothing for you except listen to a message every week. Father, you've called us to serve you, to serve the body of Christ in whatever capacity that you've gifted us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not wait to be used by you, that we'd be faithful to use our giftedness in a way that would be honoring to you with the proper motivation and the proper attitude. Lord, in the end, it's, it's you that gets the glory. We don't serve you for glory purposes. We deflect that glory to you because we know that these charis, these gifts, these charismata that you've given us, these great have been graced upon us. And it's only by your grace 
that we even get to serve you at all. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people, that you would raise up many to serve this church and this community, that we would have a newfound heart for this lost and dying world that we live in, that we would be able to be willing to proclaim the truth of the gospel in a way that would penetrate the hearts and minds of men and women, children here in this community, that we would see many come to the Christ, give you honor and glory. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name.